Welcome to the Kesset Church Podcast. We are so glad you've joined us and hope you enjoyed today's sermon. If you'd like to find out more about Kesset, you can head to kessetchurch.com or find us on Facebook. Well, good morning. Welcome to Kesset. I'm so excited that you're here. If you're brand new, I just want to thank you for coming. I know there's lots of other things going on, specifically this weekend. And uh, it's been really good to, to have so many new people take time to come and, um, and, and investigate what this, what this church and God thing are about. So thank you for that if you're brand new. My name is Danny. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm going to be sharing with you. Uh, I'm going to read a passage. A lot of people call it the Palm Sunday passage. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. I'm going to read this over us, and then I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm going to dive right into uh, to something really special, I think, that, that God has for you today. I've been praying for you all week. And my hope is that this start of your, of your Passover week, of your Easter celebration week, really set you into the right mindset and the, uh, the right approach to get the most out of uh, the story of our Savior and all he's done for all of us. Amen? Amen. And in Matthew chapter 21, we'll start in verse 1 and we'll read all the way through verse 11. It says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, And on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Heavenly Father, Lord, in this room right now, there are a lot of people who have celebrated this day many, many times, the tradition that it represents, and its impact has been great. And yet, Lord, there are also people in this room who have never celebrated this day, have really no idea what this significance is and why it's important for them. And what I ask, Lord, is you would bridge those two gaps, that even if we've heard this all before, you would make it fresh and new, that it would have meaning in tune with our lives where we're at right now. Even if we've never heard this before, I ask, Lord, that there would be a a sense of awakening inside our souls that that would be spoken to, that you alone would reach so that people may know you better that don't know you at all. Thank you, God, for what you're doing. Thank you for the way you reveal yourself. Thank you for who you are. We are grateful and we stand amazed. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So uh, this particular Palm Sunday, uh, I want to just, I want to kind of approach this from a very specific angle that I need you to, to come with me uh, in order to hear what I'm about to say in the appropriate way. 
generally when we look at Palm Sunday, we kind of look at it from the, the God uh, angle. We look at Jesus who was holy, Jesus who was blameless, Jesus who was uh, the, the, really the, the, you know, he was, he was God in the flesh, and he was willing to walk into this town in the midst of this procession, receive this praise, uh, eventually rebuke who he needed to rebuke, uh, stand uh, in, uh, you know, in the Sanhedrin and talk to the, the scribes who attacked him, and then eventually stand before Pilate, and then stand before the Sadducees, and then eventually be crucified, and then three days later be risen from the dead. And I think that's a pretty traditional Palm Sunday stance, and I, and I don't think it's inappropriate. I do believe it's missing something. And I think what I want to do today and what has really blessed my heart and I think what blessed 9 o'clock was I want to approach Palm Sunday from the person of Jesus, from the human of Jesus. Because although he was fully God, he was also fully human. And I think when you start to approach Palm Sunday and what happened in the story we just read, it starts to apply to the human in you. See, it's one thing to listen to a story and go, well, that's what happened, and he was God, and that's what happened, and that's what happened, and that's what happened, and, and pull some truth out of it. But it's another thing to actually listen to Jesus the person and apply it to Danny the person's life. And so much of Jesus' story is only taught from one angle. It's not taught from the other angle. And so what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to, to, to remember that he is God. You can't separate that from who Christ is. But I would also like you to highlight, maybe more than you ever have before, that this is a person with all the same feelings, all the same anxieties, all the same stresses, all the same emotions, all the same pain uh, receptors that you and I have, he had. And I want you to imagine what might have been going through his mind as he began and then entered that town 2,000 years ago during what the Bible calls the triumphal entry and what we celebrate as Palm Sunday. Today, we're going to learn about something that I hope you pick out of the story specifically, and it ties really well to our Out Loud series. It's actually the very next thing we're supposed to be taught about, and it's godliness. 2 Peter 1.6c, the third part of 1.6, says, and add to perseverance godliness. And godliness is really what we're experiencing when we look at Jesus in his human form going through everything he went through on Palm Sunday. Now, you might think that's confusing, but please understand, I'm not talking about godliness with a capital G and that he is God. I'm talking about godliness in that the way he behaved was godly. And so we can apply all of this behavior to our story if we can look at it from that perspective. Let me give you some definitions. What is godliness? Godliness refers to this. I'll put it on the screen. The Godward attitude that results in the duty which man owes to God. I adore that definition. It's stolen from a commentary a guy wrote years and years and years ago. Godliness is the Godward attitude that results in the duty which man owes God. To God, if we kind of take this a little bit deeper, godliness is a posture which is characterized by a God focused attitude for God's own sake. It's a posture, it's a way of being, it's an approach. That's what godliness is, and that's what when we unravel this uh, Palm Sunday story, we're going to see is what Jesus is putting on display for all of us. We're going to look at these aspects of godliness displayed by Christ specifically within the story of the triumphal entry. You can apply this, by the way, to multiple myriad, myriads of stories that Jesus had inside his scripture. Most people don't, but you can and you should. But I think more than any other element within the, the Palm Sunday story that we're missing, it's the story of Jesus as the man 
walking this out and how that applies to us specifically. So let's look at this first part of that definition, this first aspect of godliness, having a Godward attitude. I'll put a quote on the screen. Godliness as an attitude is the quality of the inner person that recognizes that all powerful creator exists and therefore actively seeks to develop a spiritual relationship with him because of him. In this way, godliness is a mindset on spiritual matters. As Jesus is entering that city, as he's fulfilling the prophecy in Isaiah, his mind is set on spiritual matters. His mind is not set fully on, on, on only that what's going to happen here in 2,000 years and how this is. His mind is set on how God is enveloping and developing all of these things that are about to happen. And he knows it because he is in tune. He's Godward in his focus. Romans 8, 5, and 6 talks about people who live like this. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. This is critical to us as Christians living godly lives, and that's that we think in a God-word, God-forward, God-first fashion. Jesus, the person, is entering town not because he wants to, not because he's craving the attention or he needs them to, to shout Hosanna in order to, to better uh, understand who he is as a person. He is entering because he is focused on what God wants in his life above all else. First Timothy says this inner spirituality is to be preferred over even physical bodily exercise. First Timothy 4.8, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Think about as Jesus is walking in there, what is going on in his mind? What is he thinking? And you might go, well, that's kind of a far stretch to know what Jesus is thinking. I don't believe so. I think the Bible uh, uh, brings clarity to the Bible. I think verses clarify verses. In John 8, 50, Jesus told people, I came and yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Christ came to seek not his own glory, but the one who seeks it. Christ's mind was clearly Godward in its focus. And so as he enters town, we know what he's thinking about because the human in him is so full of anticipatory anxiety. It's so packed full of, this is going to hurt. This is going to feel bad. This isn't what I want. The only way for him to overcome that, according to verse after verse after verse in the Bible, is to put his mind on spiritual things and to focus on his God, on what God wants to have a Godward mind. Consider that. Think about that. This is what his focus was about. In his booklet on the Christian graces, James Toll writes regarding this, this idea of having a Godward mind. Indeed, the graces of virtue, knowledge, and self-control, all the things that we think of as godly, all the things that we think of as important, as well as of patience, must be hallowed and inspired by godliness. So that the thought of God is brought into them all so that they begin and end with God. Before all else, Jesus is riding towards his death for the sake of God. Think about what that means for your life and mine. Jesus is doing something, yes, for us. And yes, 
we're going to see in a minute, the fruit of that, of course, is that we get to have a relationship with him because, as we know, he's killed and then he's, he raises from the dead, and it's this amazing thing. But have you ever really considered that Jesus got on the donkey in the first place because God asked him to? Because he cared about what God thought, and he wanted what God wanted because his mind was on spiritual matters before it was on anything else. Hebrews 12, too, maybe says, this is maybe one of the most difficult verses to unpack with this perspective in mind. 12.2 says that we're supposed to, as Christians to this day, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, so the core of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I I just don't know if you've ever sat down and really let this verse soak in, maybe read it 10 times, get up, have a cup of coffee, sit back down, read it another 10 times, because it is, unless you understand this perspective that Jesus came into Jerusalem with a Godward focus, you would totally miss that Jesus is doing something for the joy that was set before him, and therefore he endured the cross. What joy is there in the cross? The only joy that's in the cross is the reality that Jesus was doing something pleasing to God, that he was providing a way for people to reach salvation and to reach relationship. And that, therefore, brings glory to God in the highest, and that's what Jesus is all about. There's a joy inside the cross, and that joy is that Jesus did something pleasing to the Father and brought glory to him. This is a massively heavy thought. It's a complicated thing to really sit down and realize that Jesus was bringing glory to God and that brought joy. How many things inside your life right now are you doing for the sake of God alone? How many things in your life right now are you doing just because it brings glory to God? Even one thing. How about, how about this? You don't have to raise your hand. How many things in your life are you doing in your life that don't even cause you pain that just bring God glory? They don't even cause you pain. Probably not a lot. Most of the stuff we do in our Christian life, we do to bring God glory, but we also do to, to help me out a little bit. I give of my finances, right? So God will bless me. I, I, I don't want to be a, 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 a stingy husband. I don't want to be a selfish husband because I want my marriage to last and I want my, my kids to see an example. I do this because of this and I do that because of that. And if you do that, you might end up here. Oh, don't forget that because this is what will happen. Rarely do we ever go, hey, you're not going to get any value. As a matter of fact, you might experience great pain, but do it for God anyways. I've never preached that sermon. And I would never start preaching that sermon unless our church was already healthy and well-founded. <laughs> and now what are you going to do? Can you imagine if you left over that sermon? I mean, that'd be, that'd be a bummer for you. Besides, you want to stay so you can have good things happen to your life. So that's, that theology doesn't work, right? So you're like... That theology doesn't work, but the truth is that is often how we found our thinking. It is how we found much of what we do. We don't realize that when Jesus came and he started this triumphal entry, that he came because God asked him to come, it was his highest reason. This was the joy that was set before him, and that joy was the will of God. Throughout the entire triumphal entry, Christ is putting on display his Godward focus for no greater, greater reason than for God's own sake. You can't see that if the entire thing is only from one perspective of his identity. It's only from this, 
divine perspective. Unless you see this human perspective within the Palm Sunday story, then you'll miss that God was doing something he didn't want to do. And he was doing it. Jesus was doing it because God asked him to. And because it brought glory to him. No wonder within our Out Loud series we've been struggling so much with a lot of people told me this series has been more convicting than I had intended. I thought it was going to be a tiny bit lighthearted, like, let's live our lives out loud. It'll be fun. We got, like, fun things. Like, everything's fun. Instead, people are like, my heart is ripping apart. I, I see those, and I hurt. I don't know what's happening. I, I don't live my life. I don't live my life out loud very often, and I think the reason is, is, is because of this. Because to live your life out loud is to pay a cost. It's to pay a cost. And if you're a person who does things in exchange for God doing things for you, then why would you ever live your life out loud? Because that means if bad things ever happen to you, then God's not there. And suddenly he's let you down because you have a barter system with Jesus. But you don't really barter anything that matters. You just barter the things you're comfortable controlling, the things you could survive if you were to lose them. Godliness is required for those who seek God and for those who seek to be more like God. We are all called to live Godward-focused lives, and it's costly. It's costly. And some of you, that's why you're all bound up inside spiritually, because you live in a barter system, spirituality, and you gave a little bit too much and didn't get enough in return, maybe in that marriage early on, or that wayward child, or that previous church, or maybe this church. And so you're just waiting for God to catch up on what he owes you. You're going to be waiting a long time, just in case you were wondering. And you're going to be bound up a long time. And you're going to be the only one who pays that cost. Now, there's something you can do about it, and I think it's hidden within the next part of our definition for what it means to be godly. That first part is to have a Godward attitude, to, to, to love and serve God for God's own sake. The second part, let's look at that definition again. The Godward attitude, God, that's what Godliness refers to, a Godward attitude that results in the duty which man owes to God. This means there is always a doing involved with pleasing God. You, I, I, don't, I, I realize people get so hung up on this stuff, and and I don't know how else to be any clearer. When Jesus comes up to people, he doesn't say, hey, sit right there. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to run off and do some stuff. I'm going to come back and bless you some more. He says two simple words, and they're follow me. They're get up and leave what you know and do what I do. And so often, people think that they can just love God and never do anything with that love that they have for God. And that will manifest itself into a faith that is um, equal to a faith that it could have been if they would have actually followed God and went where he went. And I think, I think that's wrong. I think it's super wrong, actually. There's always a doing. James 2.14 says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? Can you just believe and never grow? Can you, just, can you even believe? Are you even alive if you're not growing? Is your faith alive if you're not growing? I'm asking you these questions. It's your job to answer them. I'll give you another verse. Uh, 2, 17 through 18, say also faith by itself. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. 
Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. I like this passage. It's kind of offensive. There's like this little head woggle in there. Like, it's just this sort of like, do the job you're built to do. Don't just proclaim you follow Jesus and then not go where he goes. I follow Jesus every time he comes into town. I follow Jesus every time he shows up at our church. I follow Jesus every single time he does what I want him to do and exchanges the thing I want to give for the thing I want more. That's when I follow Jesus. A life pleasing to God results in what we may call spiritual fruit of a well-ripened vine. Galatians 5.22. But the fruit of the Spirit are things like this. By the way, these aren't the only ones. People will often be like, hey, you never said I had to be generous. That's not one of the fruits of the Spirit. And they'll try to like limit like what? No, these are the things that, that are like the fruit of the Spirit, okay? The fruit of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are, this is supposed to get you thinking about all the ways that the Spirit's going to manifest itself within your life if you are following and doing the duty you were called to do, the duty that you owe to God because of the amazing God that he is. Not, by the way, because of anything he did for you. Remember, we already got rid of that with your Godward attitude. You don't serve God because of the stuff he did for you. You serve God because he's awesome. You serve God because of who he already is. Jesus enters town with a Godward attitude because of who God already is. But he knows he has a duty to accomplish. This is what it means to have a life pleasing to God. It is a life that bears fruit. As Jesus continues through town, people are crying out, Hosanna, save us, save us, save us. And this is so profound because what you don't realize is they're saying the general humanity distress call of save us from what we deem dangerous. Save us from oppression. Save us from the Romans. Save us from the government. Save us from a, a world that's in moral decay. Save us from not having enough power to make a difference. Save us from this issue or this issue or whatever issue you want that are valid and real and important. But Jesus is coming to do his duty. And his duty is not to save you from the things you want to be saved for. His duty is to save you from the things God wants to save you from. Things like death. Things, things like soul decay. Things like barter system spirituality. Things like thinking the spiritual fruits are only those eight things. Things like thinking you know everything that's in the Bible and everything that could ever be taught and you've spiritually reached your limit. I'm going to talk about those people in just a second. Just prepping you if you're here. I'm coming for you. Jesus came to do his job. And I don't mean that uh, to be something that you build an entire cornerstone of theology around. Because remember, I told you already, we're talking about this humanity side of Jesus. We're not talking about the, the, the God side of Jesus that, of course, plays into all this. But Jesus knew it was his body that had to die. It was the duty of the Father to call the Son. And in case you were like, I don't know about this, let me just give you some Bible in order to deal with whatever kind of Bible stuff you got going on in your head that is messing you up right now. John 3.16, bout it's as simple as I could get it. For God so loved the world that he gave his Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but in order that the world might be saved 
through him. Jesus' body had a job to do. That was his ministry. That's why I love the video. That's why I set it up. Because I thought it was did such a good job of showing all these different things, which are supposed to remove all the excuses you have to not live your life out loud, by the way. Like, well, I don't have any influence, and I don't know anything, and I didn't come from anybody. And all of a sudden, it's like Jesus lived in a place, you know, this, this big, and he, he only really served in ministry for three years, and he did this, and he did this. And you, you know what you do? You do the same thing I have done for many years. Yeah, but he's Jesus. What you mean is, yeah, but he's God, because you dismiss all the human stuff. He did all that as a human. He accomplished what the Father said as a human being. He accomplished all those things because he used his time and his mind efficiently. He was Godward focused, and he went about his Father's business. Stop disqualifying or giving yourself an excuse, and I'm in this with you, to say, well, I'm not supposed to have an impact like Jesus. I mean, I'm not Jesus. That the reality is you're supposed to have more impact in your community because Jesus is only here three years. Some of you have been here all your life. <laughs> You've been here like 50 years, and half the people that you know don't even know you know Jesus. Wow. I know, I know. This was not intended to be this kind of a message, but now it is. Now it is. Now it is. And this is what's so important, is that we realize that Jesus follows God's desires and so receives the fruit of his own life's sacrifice. How you doing on the fruit of your life's sacrifice? How's that harvest going? Because you have one, and it will be counted in front of you by the Father, who you serve with your mind when you have a Godward focus, and you're out there planting seeds. I think Scripture says that, like, a lot! So many times it uses harvest and fruit and seeds and soil, and it's trying to drive into your life, your human life, that when you and I are Godward focused and out there doing our jobs, the harvest is plentiful. And God is the one who reaps it. But guess what? I'm going to stand before him, or so are you, and he is going to count the harvest. He is going to count the harvest, the fruit of my life, sacrifice, and yours. And it's going to be measured, and it's going to be weighed. And it's not about a number, by the way. It's about you doing the job God called you to do. It's not about you starting a church or saving a thousand people. I'm so sick of Christians adding numbers to everything. Like, they know where the bar is. Are you serious? Like, I'm pretty sure Jesus is the only one who knows where the bar is, and he never gave us a number, or I would have went after that thing a long time ago. Like, how many people need to be saved to get the biggest size mansion in heaven? How many? <laughs> 50,000? I'm on it. So excited. It's like an upgraded heavenly timeshare. When, when, when that's not what it's about, he says, go out and share. And it may be go out and share in your North County town, uh, you know, during the, the harvest days, the festival. It may be go out and share and start a church in another country. It may be go out and share and raise a beautiful little girl that you just want to know Jesus. I don't know your job. That's what's so beautiful. You know your job when you have a Godward mind focused on what he wants and you're willing to do it. Do your job. Be who God's called you to be because that's what Jesus is doing. He's there to accomplish the Father's will in his life. And it's about to change everything. Now, I said a minute ago that I was going to come after those of us in the room who feel like they've accomplished enough. And I'm just a young, fiery preacher up on stage. Proud of me. But this doesn't apply to me, son, because I did a lot of amazing things in my life. 
well, you're still breathing, and there's a whole lot of people still in need. It's like a Coast Guard swimmer swimming out in the middle of a sinking ship and going, my quota's 10. <laughs> and after 10, I'm going to head on back to the boat, have some coffee. Hopefully a few of these other young guys come out there and help out. <laughs> I'm, trying, I'm trying to prepare myself. I want to be as gentle as I can for what's coming next. So I'm making sure. Let me see what those fruits of the Spirit are real quick again. <laughs> Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Okay. There's others as well, but okay. Let me just clarify with those of us in the room that the mistake the actions of good people as the actions of godly people. Let me put this on the screen. How about morality alone is not godliness? You can dig all the whales you want. You can, you can feed all the people you want. You can accomplish all the things you want to. But if you do it for more Facebook likes or more Instagram hits, then all you're really doing is filling a void that's huge inside your life in exchange for helping people. You want to be thought of as good instead of doing good. Not every display of spirituality or religion is motivated by the desire to please God. And that very thing is what makes it not godly. For godliness is only motivated by reverence for God because of God. This is the key part, because of God. Anybody who's godly and is motivated with still reverence for God because of themselves is not godly. For they cannot have a Godward thinking mind, therefore they cannot be accomplishing the things God wants them to accomplish. The way that Jesus came into town was because he was focused on what God wanted, and he comes into town, he hears the people see, here save him, and how easy would it have been for him to go, yeah, you do need saving. Where's Caesar? Where's Rome? I'm going to fix this for you guys. And suddenly people are like, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Guess what? No crucifixion. None. Because he met the needs of the people for the sake of himself. But he doesn't do that, does he? Because he's got such a Godward mind. He says, I'm not here to save you from the things you think you need to be saved from. I'm here to do my job and save you from the things God deems you to be saved from. Go back to that previous verse. We have to be people who are willing, or passage, or quote, saying, Godliness is only motivated by reverence for God because of God. If you don't and cannot focus your life around God because of God, then you will get caught up in all the good things that happen. Church is probably one of the most dangerous, intoxicating things for Christians who are good at being Christians. Yeah, somebody write that down. I'm going to put that in my how to build a church pamphlet. Because it is so dangerous if you're really good at being a Christian, because suddenly that can be your focus. That can be your goal. Hosanna, Hosanna. Let's do this. Let's reach these people. Let's accomplish this. Let's accomplish this. And you're like, yeah, 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 yeah. And then you, you get spread so thin, but you have to be the person people need you to be. And you have to accomplish what they need you to accomplish. But then suddenly you're not the husband or the father or the pastor or the child of God. And you end up not doing your job at all. You end up doing everybody else's job that they didn't want to do, that they put on you to do through you. See, God called you to feed people. And then you put that on me, that I'm supposed to go feed people, which could be part of my story, I don't know. But it shouldn't be with as much emphasis as it's on you. You're supposed to go to this other country, do this huge thing. People will come to me. I can't believe our church isn't going to support so-and-so. What? Well, yeah, they're going to do that. Good, that's their job. Why is that now my job? I can't do 1,200 people's jobs. 
And neither can you. And that's why you got to be careful when you go to a church with a pastor who has the exact vision from the exact God on all the things you're supposed to do. Because I'm here to tell you, pastors have jobs to do that aren't your jobs. And your job is to sit back and have a Godward-focused, motivated life that has reverence for God because of God. The Bible's clear about these kinds of people. He's clear about the ways in which people do this. Because godliness is only motivated in that way. Many in the Christian world have claimed godliness and spirituality as their, hide, uh, as their, own, as their own to hide deeper, darker motives. But without real fruit, the scriptures would say they practice a form of godliness. Did you know that? You even get to borrow the word. You can practice a form of godliness. Better, you can practice a form of Christianity, 2 Timothy 3, 5, and 7, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, avoid such people. Then one of my favorite lines in the Bible, always, these are the kinds of people that appear to be godly. They're people always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. They are thirsty for we should do. They are thirsty for, have you heard about this? They are thirsty for, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. But they never actually arrive at the knowledge of truth, which is that their Godward-focused minds are supposed to be giving them the job that they're supposed to do. You have a job, but you cannot get it unless your mind is focused on God for God's own sake. Once you can... And once you realize that being that uh, morality alone is not godliness, then suddenly you become someone who bears ripe fruit. The fruits of godliness can always be seen and t- tasted. I love this verse in Isaiah. It says, tell the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. They shall eat of the fruit of their deeds. They shall They shall feel it and see it. And it won't matter what some pastor says, what some church says, what some book says. They'll have a Godward-focused mind. And therefore, in their hearts, they will walk into that town, no matter the cost ahead, to bring glory to God. And they will do their duty. Therefore, they will be godly. When it comes to this duty, a godly person is one who acts properly and reacts properly to God for God's own sake. God is seen in this person from the inside out and from the outside in. I believe that all throughout his triumphal entry that Jesus knew his duty and what was being asked of him. Because of this, I also believe that he found great strength within, him, within his human self, even in this difficult place, ending this day, by the way, with a giant, spectacular verse in the book of John of a Godward prayer regarding his mindset and desire at this time. And I want you to hear this because it's so beautiful and so vulnerable and so full wrapping of what Jesus was coming to accomplish upon that day. He's entered town. He's heard the people's cries. He knows the pain is coming. He has anxiety. I think Jesus experienced that. He has fear. I think Jesus experienced that. He, he considers a different path, hopes for a different path. The human side of him sweats. He gets alone. And it says in John, after you read the triumphal entry, that he has an engagement with some scribes. And then it says this, Jesus lifts up this simple prayer. And I offer this to you today to start your Easter week. He says these words, 
Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Glorify your name. I I love this passage. I love this idea that, that Jesus says to God, I know what you're thinking and I know what you want and so I'm coming to do it. What shall I say that I don't want to do it anymore? No, I come to do my job. I come to sacrifice myself. I come to do my my duty. And so, Father, glorify your name and look at the passage. Look at God's response. He doesn't say, oh, poor Jesus. He doesn't say, it'll be okay. He doesn't say, yeah, maybe there is a different way. No, see, God's all-knowing. And he is perfect in the way in which he renders our lives. It says, a voice came from heaven, and God responds, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. He says, I will use your sacrifice. I will use your story. I will use the things inside your life that you give me to bring glory to me, and therefore you will live your very best life. Ladies and gentlemen, this Palm Sunday experience is one giant example of how we're supposed to fall before God with our faith. We are supposed to have our minds Godward. We're supposed to recognize there is a job to do, and we are supposed to be honest with him about the anxiety that job brings, the stress it is to to work on this broken marriage versus running away, the stress it is to be a good boss or a good friend, the stress it is to be a good student or to have a, a healthy dating relationship. All these kinds of things we're supposed to bring to God and be honest and authentic about what it brings to our bodies and our spirits, all having a Godward focused mind and then we're supposed to say like Jesus did I'd love you to change it I would love it to be easier and different but even if it isn't because I want to be godly and because my mind is focused on you I want to bear fruit with my one life and I want to bring glory to who you are and so you use it God no matter what it costs me you use it no matter what it costs me no more excuses no more I'm too old or I'm too young or I'm too messed up or I'm, I'm, I'm too addicted or I'm too broken or my story's too shattered. No more excuses, God. I want to live my life for you and you alone, focused on you doing my job, doing my duty. I want to bear fruit, whatever that looks like for you. And God, you bring glory out of it. And I promise you people, this response to Jesus is a possible response to you and I. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. I will use your story to bless people and bring more glory to me if you will simply surrender your path, your travels, your journey, your life. Perhaps this Palm Sunday you can evaluate your own spiritual attitude and duty. Are you functioning in a way that brings glory to God in your spiritual life's attitude and works? Is Jesus Christ, as the opening video asked, something more than what you are allowing him to be within your life? Is he being held how he should be held? Or do you excuse everything he does with, well, he's God? Do you see the human element of his story and how it applies so intimately to you? That's the point. He could have snapped his fingers and done all this stuff. But instead, he comes to be an example to you of how to live, Godward focus, doing the job, willing to sacrifice, all to bring glory to the one who matters. That's what this church is going to be about. I think that's what it is about. 
And I'm beyond proud to be part of it. And I know it costs you a lot. I know marriages in this room who've been through a lot and you're still fighting it out. I want to encourage you. I know people who are trying their hardest to date in a way that brings glory to God. And I want to encourage you. I know people who give monthly and they're generous. And I know it costs you. I know you go without in order to bring glory to God. And I want to encourage you. But I also know people who play games with their faith. They have excuses. And Easter's just tradition for them. And I'm here to tell you, we will never be a church that celebrates tradition for tradition's sake. We celebrate tradition because it brings glory to God. This is what we're about. And our Jesus has been an amazing example of how one life could impact so many. Imagine if you could live even a shadow of that life. All the people you could impact. And more importantly, all the glory you could bring to God. Heavenly Father, Lord, I know we've stirred this room up a bit. I blame you. We got a lot of people asking a lot of questions, and God, I ask that that would be the start of an amazing spiritual awakening. There would be a sense, God, of more, that there would be a sense of, of a penetrating truth within this room. A truth that proclaims we can focus our minds and receive from you. We can bear open our hearts and receive from you. We can lift our hands and sing our songs. We can give generously. We can work diligently. We can lead with integrity. We can be vulnerable and transparent. We can get in the mud and scream from the rooftops. We can live lives well bringing glory to you in all circumstances, no matter their texture, no matter the world's view. We, God, can see what you see. I ask in this room right now that you would simply meet us. There's just no way, Lord, I can, I can sew up what's been opened this Palm Sunday. And so, Lord, won't you save us from what you know we need saved from? Won't you rest with us in our anxiety and our fears and our heartaches and our body aches? And through it all, won't we praise you no matter? Not in exchange, not in barter, but because you are God. We thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice. We praise you and proclaim you worthy. Amen.